It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 223, The Lion's Den. Daniel 6. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The reason the Bible states Darius instead of Cyrus is because he was the co-regent and the son of Cyrus. Cyrus is still around. He's just older. He actually conquered Babylon at the age of 62, and it's amazing how he conquers an empire when, when one can actually start collecting Social Security in America. And I'm amazed how some guys just don't stop. I mean, Donald Trump, however you feel about him, he became president at the age of 70. That's just incredible. I want to go strong into my 70s. How about you? Cyrus is now co-ruling with his son Darius. Darius will soon become the ruler of the entire Persian Empire. The account continues, and check out the favor Daniel has again, and it doesn't matter who's in charge, Daniel has incredible favor. Instantly, he's a top three administrator in the kingdom of the Medes and Persians, and at this stage, he's moved to Persepolis, or one of the Persian capital cities. So he kind of moved north out of Babylon, but then he goes east um, to, to the far, e- far cities in Persia. It could be Susa, it could be Persepolis, or some other city. And he's leaving his home, Babylon, that he knew the majority of his life. And regarding the appointment of these administrators, and, and this is something I remember learning about Augustus in, in, in the Roman time period from the History of Rome podcast. Augustus would appoint administrators for life, and these guys would run the administrative part of the empire. And often they were eunuchs, or they were brilliant men who made sure everything worked properly from taxes to administrator of um, responsibilities, building projects. It was the Caesars or rulers who conducted campaigns and did the extravagant building projects. The, but the lifetime administrators were the ones who enabled the empire to continue to run while the wars of succession and disastrous internal de- struggles occurred. It's these guys who made sure the empire continued regardless of politics. And here we see a working model as well. And there's even a biblical comment. The satraps were accountable to the administrator so that the king might not suffer loss. A.K.A. the king could be away or doing something else or fighting in wars. But government would continue. Daniel 6, 2. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king may not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. And at this, the administrators and satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of governmental affairs, but they were unable to. They could not find no corruption in him at all, because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. And finally, these men said, We will never find any basis for charges against this man Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So Daniel has this incredible favor. And while the Babylonians were autocratic and Nebuchadnezzar could do anything he wanted, The Persians had a different governmental system. They actually had a powerful set of laws in their kingdom. 
a constitution of sorts. Uh, uh, be careful not to say constitution. They just had a, a, a powerful set of laws that held the king accountable. The king could repeal any law he wanted, but not without a significant amount of approvals required from his people. And this is something that hindered a good king, but held a bad king accountable. It's actually this accountability that some of the other administrators will try to trick Cyrus or, or Darius into getting rid of Daniel. So something else about Cyrus. In the British Museum, we have an item called the Cyrus Cylinder, which reads off his achievements. And, and one of the achievements that's kind of touted from this Cyrus Cylinder was his tolerance. Cyrus showed an incredible acute ability to manage his vast empire. While the Assyrians deported peoples or killed them, the Babylonians did something a bit more moderate. The Persians were incredibly liberal, and it's a reason why Cyrus has childed in world history so much. He demanded taxes, but he let people keep their customs and their religion. He allowed a freedom of religion and tolerance for peoples throughout his empire. He gained great favor of the people by moving people back to their homelands like the Jews. And this also falls along the lines of some ideas spreading throughout the world at the moment. In a short amount of time, a few cities placed in the western world of Europe will overthrow their kings and arrive at new forms of government never before seen in the world. It's an idea, and it's a revolutionary one, the idea of freedom, self-government. Maybe it's religious in nature. Maybe God released it on the earth to renew ideas and freedom. Maybe it was birthed through philosophy and simple logic being applied on the planet. Wherever it came from, Cyrus was radical for his time as well. He conquered areas and did demand taxes. He waged his wars and his campaigns, but he allowed for religious freedom and local government. He allowed others to rule themselves, and this was revolutionary. So let's consider the Cyrus Cylinder again. This is found in the British Museum. And man, there's so much stuff in the British Museum. Here's a write-up on the Cyrus Cylinder from the British Museum site. And yes, 15 years ago when I went there, I just walked right by it like an idiot. And I, and I, and I just, I was really thought those Assyrian megalith stone creatures that they had were awesome. And I think I walked right by the Cyrus Cylinder as well. And I think I got distracted by the paintings. I think it was Claude Lorraine and some of the other artwork. Um, but I just rocked by. This is archaeologically awesome Cyrus Cylinder. And, I, and if I ever go back, I just, I'm going to drool like a history junkie should. So this is from the museum website. The Cyrus Cylinder, Clay Cylinder, a Babylonian account of the conquest of Babylon by Cyrus in 539 B.C., of his restoration to various temples and statues removed by Nabonidus, the previous king of Babylon, and his own work at Babylon. The cylindrical form is typical of royal inscriptions of the late Babylonian period, and the text shows that the cylinder was written to be buried in the foundations of the city wall of Babylon. It was deposited there after the capture of the city by Cyrus in 539 B.C., and presumably written on his orders. The text is incomplete. It is written in Babylonian script and language and records of Nabonidus, the last king of Babylon, that he had perverted the cults of the Babylonian gods, including Marduk, the city god of Babylon, and imposed labor service on its free population, who complained to the gods. The gods responded by deserting Babylon, but Marduk looked around for a champion to restore the old ways. He chose Cyrus, the king of Persia, and declared him king of the world. 
First Cyrus expanded his kingship over the tribes of Iran, ruling them justly. Then Marduk ordered Cyrus to march on Babylon, which he ordered, which he entered without a fight. Nabonidus was delivered into his hands, and the people of Babylon joyfully accepted the kingship of Cyrus. Now this is where it gets interesting. Check out how Cyrus, and this is the continuation of the Cyrus Cylinder, how Cyrus introduces himself. From this point on, the document is written as if Cyrus himself is speaking. I, Cyrus, king of the world. He represents himself as a worshiper of Marduk who strove for peace in Babylon and abolished the labor service of his population. The people of the neighboring countries brought tribute to Babylon, and Cyrus claims to have restored their temples and religious cults and to have returned their previously deported gods and people. Isn't this fascinating documentation of the capture of Babylon and confirmation of this man named Cyrus? Cyrus, king of the world. Arrogant and awesome. Stupid, yet powerful. Cyrus, king of the world. We was king of most of the known world. Also, the line that he justly ruled is interesting because this was important to him, and he freed slaves, and he was enlightened sort of ruler. Okay, so back to our account of Daniel. His co-administrators are jealous of him. They want him done away with. And let's do the math real quick. Like I, I looked at when Daniel was actually brought to Babylon, and if you do the math, I mean, the guy's in his 80s. He's old. I mean, it, but he's still so admired. Like, I'm I, I, trying to picture what he probably looked like. Maybe like a Anthony Hopkins or a Jewish version of Sean Connery. Like, he, he had to have been so, like, his presence alone in a room must have changed the way people um, thought and considered him. And in the way he spoke, there must have been such an anointing and a favor upon him. Um, of the way he spoke, he acted, um, he looked the way he presented himself, something about Daniel, even into his 80s, brought an admiration of people that didn't even worship his God. But those administrators, those satraps, they want him gone. And Josephus has a lot to add, and I love the detail here, because he's going to add how they actually try to frame him, um, and how they don't get away with it, but how much integrity that Daniel actually has. However, while Daniel was in great dignity and in great favor with Darius and was alone and trusted with everything by him, a having somewhat divine in him, he was envied by the rest for those who see others in greater honor than themselves with kings envy them. And when those that were grieved at the great favor of Daniel was in Darius sought for any occasion against him, he afforded them no occasion at all, for he was above all the temptations of money despised bribery, and esteemed it a very base thing to take anything by way of reward, even when it might be justly given to him. He afforded those that envied him not the least handle for any accusation. So when they could find nothing for which they had calumniate him to the king, nothing that was shameful or reproachful, and thereby deprive him of the honor he was with, they sought for some other method whereby they might destroy him. I mean, these guys hated Daniel. He was a foreigner. He was actually a Jew. He wasn't even Babylonian, but then he came from Babylon. Now he's in the capital of Persia, an outsider. And they hated it, and they were jealous of him, and they wanted him killed. Daniel 6.6 6. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, 
May the king Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce a decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next thirty days except to you, your majesty shall be thrown in the lion's den. Now your majesty issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Although they tricked the king, and he fell for the bait, the problem was this accountability of their law. It said the law can't be repealed. That's true, I guess, but he could probably issue another law that would replace it, and that's what we're going to find later with Esther. Um, but with he cannot issue this law without some sort of approval. So there's this accountability. And instead of it holding accountable a bad king, it's limiting the power of a good king. And they tricked him. Yet Daniel knew their plan. And I considered the grizzled 80-year-old-plus veteran Daniel. He didn't care what would happen to him. He saw God move in his life. Why not again? And I potentially see him smiling considering the martyr he would become or the miracle he would see. I mean, at some point in one's life, fear has like nothing. I mean, that's, that's the devil's language. And, and, and Daniel's in his 80s. It is said that he even cares. I mean, it's just amazing. Like instantly he knows they're going to try to frame him. They want to see him worship. And he just does it in their sight. It's like... I prepare a table before me in the midst of my enemies. And after all, Daniel has seen it, and I don't think he cares anymore about persecution. If I die, I die. If I see the Lord, I see the Lord. If I live, then God has moved and revealed himself even more to people. To live is Christ, to die is gain. There's a parallel in this account as well. This mirrors the time in church history when the Caesars required worship or people would be put to death. Further, the end of the age, when everyone is required to have the mark of the beast, this is demonic control, demonic worship. When this decision is placed before a believer, there's no gray. I mean, you, you just, it's yes or no. It's that Elijah moment when he's like, how long are you going to serve God or Baal? Make your decision. And, and you, there is no gray. And Revelation goes further. You know, the people that take this mark of the beast... It's, they're basically, it's, it's like an invitation for demonization by a worshiper. And you're bowing a knee to another, not God. And we will see later that this worship of the king of Persia is actually a worship of a principality that's over the king of Persia. It'll actually be called the prince of Persia in one of Daniel's revelations. This is what someone is worshiping when they bow down towards the head of the state in Persia, not the king. And, and worshiping of idols, I've been thinking about it. It's, it it's, it's almost like taking a drug. You know, like it, it's, uh, there's probably some sort of uh, um, temporary release or like a um, high. But what you're doing is you're, you're, you're messing with the insides of your body and your mind and you're, you're tearing down your, your soul in a way, and you're surrendering it to another. And when one bows down to another, it's submission to be filled by what they worship. You become what you worship. Desire and your wants altered 
toward the thing that you're worshiping. In the case of Jesus, he fills you with the Spirit, his love, and his joy. In the case of Persia, well, let's say one's filled with thoughts of submission to the will of the king of the principality. In the case of one role, it could be rejection and servanthood and fear. In the case of maybe a soldier, submission and fear and maybe a little courage. And all these fitting for the control of the person. It's this bowing down to worship of another leader or an idol that puts you in almost a submission to what it's actually, it's driving force behind it. In the case of Jesus, he confirms our gifts and talents and our identity and how God actually created us. He fills us with purpose and destiny and fruits of the love and joy and peace of the Spirit. And he sets us up continually with divine appointments to build our character and our relationships, to walk into our destiny all the while he reveals his glory to us every day. It's so different. Daniel's not going to fall for it. See, it's totally different. In submission to idols, you are emptied and controlled by another. In submission to Jesus, you are healed and filled with the Spirit. Daniel wasn't going to bow a knee. The Christians in the days of the Roman persecution, they wouldn't bow a knee. There were some, but most of them did not bow a knee and worship to Caesar. True believers at the end of the age aren't going to bow a knee. They're not going to take the mark of the beast. It's the fullest picture of abandonment to God, bowing a knee to worship another. In this case, it's not a small compromise. It's the essential truth. It's the essential decision in life. The decision of a lifetime, who will you worship? Daniel 6.10 Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asked God for help. Then they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree, did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown in the lion's den? The king answered, The decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day, and when the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and make every effort until sundown to save him. He truly did make every effort to save Daniel according to the limited law and the ability in his hands, but he probably couldn't get enough to agree with him of the right representatives to, to pass a new law that would circumvent it um, or to cancel it. Though it said he couldn't really be repealed, maybe there was another you know, way through the legal system that he could do this, but these guys who tricked him, they're not going to agree to a change. It was all done for a reason. And these guys are persistent, and, and with it, they, they show their true colors. And Darius sees all of these guys are against Daniel. They're the ones who framed and even tricked him to cause him to be killed. Darius clearly sees the power of these administrators that tricked him, and he sees what they're up to. He feels betrayed by them, and he would have his justice. Daniel six fifteen. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no edict or decree that the king issues can be changed. 
So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him in the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the lion's den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. Imagine Daniel being put in the lion's den. Unbelievable horror. He was going to be eaten alive because he refused to not worship his God. But in the flesh, Daniel must have been terrified. But in the spirit, he must have rejoiced in the opportunity of God showing up. Regardless, any human being entering a lion's den must have been messed up. The moment of entering the lion's den must have been frightening for any person. I picture Daniel praying like crazy as he enters the lion's den. Now, we, we actually see another fast in the Bible here. The king truly loved Daniel, and he didn't want him to die. It said he fasted all night and denied entertainment, and he couldn't sleep. Want to do a king's fast? Fast all night. Ha. Want to approach the king? Fast for three days, like Esther. Daniel six nineteen. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. And when he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel's answer, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouth of the lions. They have not hurt me because I have found innocent in your eyes, nor have I ever done anything wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was fill, lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he was, had trusted in his God. An angel came and shut the mouth of the lions. That's awesome. Don't you love the book of Daniel? It's so full of the supernatural. Can you imagine what that looked like? An angel came and shut the mouth of the lions. I love Daniel's response. I was found innocent in his sight. Because of this, they couldn't harm me. How about that promise? I was found innocent in his sight, and they couldn't harm me. Almost sounds like Isaiah fifty-four seventeen, And it's the King James that got this one right. No weapon that is formed against us shall prosper. Every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment shall be condemned. We're all innocent by the price that Jesus paid on the cross. If we would embrace it and walk in it, receive this promise and walk in it. No weapon of the enemy has power over you because we're innocent in Jesus' sight. The king's reaction was deadly to those who tricked him. Daniel six twenty four. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown in the lion's den, along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Matthew twenty three twelve. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. We conclude this account um, with uh, ancient worldwide evangelism. Darius, the ruler of the world's largest empire to date, praises God and spreads his message throughout the planet. 
Daniel 6, 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language on all the earth. May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that every part of my kingdom people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. How incredible was this message. Riders must have taken the king's road and all of its ancient side roads into all the posts of the Persian Empire and read this announcement to the peoples in a public setting. Potentially 1,500 cities were read this decree. With it, I assume there was conversations about this God of Daniel and who he was and who, who had, how he had this power. The message of the power of God spread throughout the Persian Empire, just like in the days of Nebuchadnezzar. It takes a Daniel to confront a king. It takes a Daniel to shatter things around them and to be the vessel to offer God the opportunity to move. It takes a Daniel for the kings of the earth to recognize God's power. Be excellent in your marketplace, your position. Allow God to move in and around you. Be God's vessel. Welcome the Holy Spirit. Welcome God to move in signs and wonders so that the kings of the earth can, can't help but praise God. It's a different way of thinking Daniel got it in his old age. At this point, crisis are an opportunity for God to move. Surrender all to him, even the disasters and the crisis of life. Offer him a chance to move so the kings of the earth will not help but notice the power of God and praise him. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Message to Kings. Feel free to visit the website, messagetokings.com. Share the Facebook page, or if you want to chat, email us at messagetokings at gmail.com.